Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In chapters 10, 11, and 15 of his treatise on virtues and vices, Alcuin is going to discuss three, you could say, connected, cognitive, volitional, and also action-oriented or action-manifesting dispositions, each of which could be viewed as a kind of virtue or as stemming from a virtue. And these are humility, compunction of heart, and fear of God. Fear of God is discussed a little bit later in the text in chapter 15. Humility and compunction are discussed right next to each other in chapters 10 and 11. And chapter 11 actually begins by highlighting the connection between humility and compunction of heart. And I thought it would be useful in considering these to actually begin with fear of God rather than with humility and compunction of heart because of the the contrasts that we see in them. And he brings up fear of God or fear of the Lord, timor dominum, domini rather, as the beginning of wisdom. And this is coming from the Psalms. And he says, it's a great caution for sin always to fear God being present. He who fears God perfectly, diligently keeps himself from sin. So that makes it sound like, well, fear of God is like, well, the big daddy up in the sky is watching me. I better be really careful so I don't get myself in trouble. And, you know, admittedly, for some people, that is indeed what it consists in. But Alcuin thinks that that is far too much of a punitive approach to things. There's more to this fear of God. It's not merely a negative comportment of, oh, I got to be scared all the time. And there's some positivity to it instead. Before we look at that, though, we should pay attention to one important aspect of this. So fear of God is fear of this divine being who transcends not just us, these limited creatures we are, but the entire universe and pays attention not just to the things that we do, right, to actions or operations, to the externals, but to the heart, to our inward comportment, you know, our wills, our intellects, our habits, what, what kind of people we are. And so he says, he who blushes to sin in the sight of people, how much more he ought to blush, that is, feel shame, to do iniquity in the sight of God. They who fear God with holy fear ask what sort of things are actually pleasing to God. And here is where we get to a really important distinction. There's more than one way to fear. And Alcuin is going to use the same term throughout this. He's going to use timor and timendi, the gerundive, and timere, the, the verb. He's using the same language for all of these, but he says there's a really important distinction here. Are we going to fear God like sons or children of God? Or are we going to fear God in the way that slaves fear a master? Because these are indeed quite different from each other. So he says, slaves fear their master because of torments. Sons indeed fear their fathers because of love. So if we are sons or children of God, let us fear him from the sweetness of charity, not the bitterness of fear. 
charity or love, right? And we've got this contraposition of sweetness, one kind of taste, bitterness. For the medievals, they thought that taste was on a spectrum with bitterness on one side, sweetness on the other, and all the other tastes in between. And so if we're going to fear God in the way that is productive, I mean, it might be productive for some people to fear God as a servant, as a preliminary step, but ultimately you want to get to the point where fear really means love. You fear to disappoint the one who you love, the one who you care about. And so he goes on and he says, Blessed is the person who's always trembling and whose gift is to have the fear of God always before his eyes. He who fears the Lord withdraws from the crooked way and directs his ways to the path of virtue. So it's not just simply not breaking the rules. It requires cultivating the virtues. The fear of God repels sins and adds virtues. So this is uh, understood as an important part of the moral life. When we go back to humility in chapter 10, a very long chapter in the work, by the way, he says, how great the virtue of true vera humility may be easily learned from the words of the Lord, who in order to condemn the pride, humility is opposed to pride, right? Of the Pharisees says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Alcuin is going to give a lot of examples of this drawn from scripture. So there's a dynamic here, right? The person who exalts himself through pride is actually going to fall. And we see this in the chapters on pride, but the one who lowers him or herself self through humility will be raised up. They're not just going to remain down there groveling in the dust saying, woe is me, I'm nothing but a worm. No, they'll actually be recognized and brought up. This is true humility, not fake humility, not just having poor self-esteem or something like that. This means recognizing the kind of being that you are, uh, you know, something that has a tendency to think of itself as very special and awesome, but oftentimes is not such, right? And he tells us that this allows us an approach to God. Let us therefore learn humility through which we will be able to approach God, just as he himself says in the gospel, learn from me since I am mild and humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now, this is very interesting because what this means is it doesn't just allow us to approach God. God himself incarnate as, as Jesus Christ is modeling and also teaching humility. So, you know, if it's good enough for God to do, presumably us miserable bastards down here who are not God, we can be humble as well and we can follow that great example. And so we see a lot of, you know, scripture quotes here. And he says, whoever will not be humble and quiet can't have the grace of the Holy Spirit live in him. God was made humble for the sake of our salvation so that humans might be ashamed to be proud. So, you know, this is a, a lesson for us. We could have figured that out on our own, but we often didn't. And so he says, as much as the heart is inclined to the depths with humility, right? So it lowers itself, that much it profits in the height. For he who will be humble will be exalted in glory. So there's this promise going on. 
And then he starts to get very granular, very prescriptive about this. And he talks about the first step, gradus, of humility. Now, this is what we could think of as part of a progression. Um, later authors will talk about humility as being a mountain with seven steps along the way. Different people will construe this in different ways. But what's the first step? You can't do any of it without the first step. So he says that listening humbly to the word of truth, right? That's very important. Listening to the word of truth by itself means, you know, taking in teachings about how we ought to behave, how we ought to understand ourselves. Doing so humbly is already being humble. Being willing to actually have somebody tell you how things are and not argue with them all the time. And then we have to, as he says, retain it and retain it accurately, not just retain it with the parts that we liked or the parts we're comfortable with. Retain the whole thing, right? Even though it makes us feel bad about ourselves and that we're not, you know, where we'd like to be, but we have to retain it accurately. And then he says, carry it out. Without this, you don't really have humility. Humility isn't just like learning a few quotes and then putting them on Instagram and, you know, then calling it a day. You have to actually practice this sort of thing and you have to do it, as he says, voluntarily. Carry it out choosing to do that. That's difficult, right? But that is what humility requires. And humility is one of the most important virtues for Alcuin. Why? Because it is the one that is opposed to pride, also to vainglory. You could say it's also opposed to others as well. And it, it helps us resist these capital vices that are likely to lead us into all sorts of problems. It also, as we see in chapter 11, leads to what we call compunction of the heart. This is something that was very, very important in early and medieval Christianity. This notion that your heart, you know, where your emotions are, where your will is seated, needs to actually feel bad about the crappy things you've done. We can call them sins. We can call them vices. We can call them evil deeds. And so compunction of the heart, as he says, is born from the virtue of humility. So without humility, no compunction of the heart. Unless you can actually look at yourself in an accurate light, which is often painful, you cannot feel compunction of the heart. And compunction of the heart is very important because there's an entire chain of production of other affects, deeds, virtues that is involved here. So he says, from compunction comes confession of sins. From confession comes penance. From true penance, not just any old penance, will come remission or forgiveness of sins. So if you want your sins forgiven, you actually need humility, which then leads to compunction, then leads to confession, then leads to doing something, putting some skin in the game, as they say, which then leads to forgiveness of sins. And then he says, this is going to be painful. Tears are accustomed to flow from the twin fountains of compunction. What are those twin fountains? I mean, you could say, well, here's one, one eyeball, here's the other. But he actually also names what these twin fountains are and they're within us. So one of these, he says, is when it considers diligently, that is not just for a moment, but it deliberately does this, the merits of its work, or when the mind diligently considers the evils, when it says, oh, wow, I 
haven't done what I ought to do and I've done other things instead. And then he says the other when it longs for the desire of eternal life. Now let's pause on that for a second because he doesn't say when it desires eternal life and it doesn't have eternal life. Oh, I'm so sad because, you know, I don't have it yet. He says when it longs for suspirat, the desire, desiderio of eternal life. Why does it long for a desire? Because it doesn't have that desire. Because the human being can say, man, I should be desiring eternal life. I would be much better off if I had my head on straight, as we say, and I was desiring the things that I should, but I'm actually desiring all these other things instead. I wish that I actually did desire the right things. Well, that can lead to this twin fountains of tears. And crying about these sort of things in the Middle Ages was viewed as, you know, the right thing to do. It's an expression of a properly ordered human being in relation to being not properly ordered entirely. And so he goes on and he says, there's four qualities of feelings by which thought of the just is pricked by salubrious loathing. What is loathing? Hatred, right? Salubrious means healthy. So there are ways in which we should feel bad and, you know, even hate aspects of ourselves. And he says the four qualities of feeling, affectionum. So affectio is this very broad scope of what we sometimes just call affectivity, right? Feelings, emotions drives. So one of these is memory. Memory of what? Memory of past deeds. If you remember your past deeds, some of them probably you didn't measure up and you can be like, oh crap, I did that thing and I shouldn't have done that thing. I said that thing and I shouldn't have said that thing. Or I did a good thing, but I didn't do it for the right reason. Or I didn't go far enough or I didn't follow through on it. So that's one. Then he says the recollection of future punishments now, recollection is recordatio, right? Bringing it back into the heart and sort of thinking about it. Where am I going? And this could be, you know, am I going to heaven or hell? But it could also be thinking about future punishments, even just in the relationships that you have. Man, I acted like a jerk and now my relationship with so-and-so is damaged and I'll, they'll probably never talk to me again, right? That could be part of it. Consideration. He talks about consideration of our pilgrimage in the misery of this life. Well, that can make you feel kind of unhappy as well. And then he says, the desire of the heavenly country, desiderium, right? So that he may be able to reach there as soon as possible. And he says, since these things are made in the heart of a person, right? So that's, it can be compunction of heart through these feelings, these affectiones, right? He says, it is then to be known that God through his grace is present in the human heart. When you have these things going on, then God is present with you. And he says, there's a desirable treasure in the heart of humans, the sweetness of compunction. The soul of a person which is pricked in prayer profits to salvation. And when compunction is poured out, it's not to be doubted that the presence of the Holy Spirit is present in our hearts. So humility and fear of God lead to a recognition of our own condition and what we ought to be doing in order to improve it. And we have to face up to who we are, what we've done, where we've failed in order for that to happen. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. 
Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.